Podcast episode 109. I'm your host, John X. Thanks for joining us. Glad to have you back once again on this week's show. Just an incredibly dynamic presence. Just a real ray of sunshine and someone that I adored getting the opportunity to chat with. Today's guest is Susie Q. Smith. Now, who is Susie Q. Smith? First of all, she's a slam poet. If you're anything like me, you don't have a lot of experience in the slam poetry world. So the beginning part of this episode, Susie is good enough to give us sort of a slam poetry 101. Here's what it is. Here's what you can expect. Here's how the competition structured. It was enormously helpful for me, and it sounds like a lot of fun. It actually got me really jazzed up to go check out some slam poetry. She is also the executive director of Slam Poetry Incorporated. So she's got the artistic side, and she's got the business side. And she was instrumental in bringing the National Poetry Slam to Denver in 2017. That's a huge coup. That is an unbelievable get. An event of this stature, an event of this size, and it's coming to Denver. And it's largely, I mean, she thanks a lot of the people she works with, but it's largely due to Susie Q. Smith. Now, before we go any further, just like to give another shout to Bree Davies. She hooked me up with this one as well. She is just an incredibly giving and thoughtful person. When I reached out to her and I said, hey, you know, who's doing good work that I might not be aware of, that I might not have exposure to? I like to push myself. I have a, a pretty broad network here in Denver. You do PR in Denver for a decade, and you'll get a pretty broad network. But a lot of my folks tend to look the same. You know what I mean? I know who I am. I know what my interests are. I know what my experience is. And I know where I can reach out and get shows that are right in my wheelhouse. Well, I like to push beyond that. And that's where I have an ask for you. If you are listening to this show, or any of my shows for that matter, and you go, you know who might be good? Here's something that I'll bet John doesn't know a lot about, but that he would have interest in. And how do you know I'd have interest in it? I'm interested in everything. I'm naturally curious. I want to learn more about the world. I want to build empathy. For God's sakes, if we can do one thing, Let's build empathy. Let's make the world less scary. Let's shed some light on corners of the world where we may not see them that much. And that's why I was so thrilled to do this episode with Susie. She was good enough to come sit in my basement. She had a lot going on that day. But I could have listened to her talk for two more hours at least. Just an incredibly talented, very driven person. And this episode was just an absolute delight. And I hope she feels it was worth her time. I hope she feels we treated her right and that... You know, we got to maybe open her up to audiences that might not know about her work or the worlds in which she exists and thrives. That's what we do. We make connections. We build bridges. We get to know each other. And if we could all do that a little more in this election season, for the love of God, if we could stop demonizing each other to the extent that we are, that would be fantastic. At one point, I tell Susie, that after listening to her and seeing a couple of her performances on YouTube, I got the same feelings inside of me as when I listened to punk rock. That's a connection she may not get all that often, but one that I made. And we connected in a, in a very sort of interesting way, I think. And that's fantastic. And that's what I love so much about this show. So if you are listening and you have an idea, 
don't hesitate to pitch me. You can find me on four different social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Snapchat. All four of those are at the same handle. It's J-O-A-T-Pod. Give me show ideas. Give me things that I wouldn't find on my own. I love that. When you download the show, it is on iTunes or it's on Stitcher. You can subscribe at both of those places. All the work's done for you. It comes right to your listening device. And that's a very easy way of getting exposure into worlds where you may not get them. Also, an announcement. I got invited to participate at the Denver Film Festival again this year. So that'll be exciting. I'll have a number of shows from DFF 39. Can't wait to do that. Had a great time last year. Had some great shows. And I think we'll have some more again this year. And you know what? That's probably enough for this intro. So let's get to episode 109. Susie Q. Smith of Poetry Slam Incorporated. She is a slam poet. She is an artist. She's an activist. And she sits down with me also before we get started. She gives great insight into her corporate job. Yep, that's right. Another person who started in corporate, ended up chasing her passions, had to make the leap. Let's talk about what the leap was like for her. That comes in about the back third of this episode. So... Episode 109, Susie Q. Smith, starts right now. Got a lot of work done this morning. Got here. Uh, I'll be going over to Lighthouse Writers this afternoon, or later after this, to talk to them about the National Poetry Slam and how we're wow. going to work together. And then running errands and running through and writing a set list for tomorrow's afternoon's reading that I'm doing. Wow. Okay, where's that? Uh, it is at Mutiny Information Cafe on South Broadway. Yeah, yeah, I know Mutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're doing a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, they're definitely a super unique venue. They're doing cool things with their store. It reminds me a little bit of the old Mercury Cafe, where they would have like different stuff there all the time. Oh, they still do. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, fantastic! Mercury Cafe is alive and well. Um, I well, I haven't been there in too long. Oh, so it's, it's um, you know, I think. As a native Denverite, there are few spaces that, you know, you hold anything that is even remotely similar to what you remember. So the Mercury Cafe is still alive and well, and I hold it very dear to my heart because so many places that that, uh, shape this city that I grew up in no longer exist. Yeah, I've noticed that too. The the city is evolving, and... You see it on lists. Like, you'll you'll read national lists, like, why Denver's the coolest city, why Denver's growing. And having grown up here and lived here my entire life, sometimes I think, and I talk to Bree a lot about this because Bree was on the show and mm-hmm. Bree writes about Denver all the time. Right. And that's who suggested you to be here, which was great. And I'm so happy that you were able to take some time and be here. But I don't know that it's necessarily evolving in a positive way. You know, you look at a city like San Francisco that seems to be comprised almost entirely now of absentee landlords and tech bros. Right. And... I don't want Denver to lose, you know, its character in the same way that that a city like that has, where it's almost too expensive for regular folks to enjoy it. Right. Have you experienced that at all? Uh, There are fewer and fewer regular folks all the time (laughs) in Denver. And I think that the growth is healthy in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, You know, I'm, I'm not really... One of the sort of nativists that, uh, you know, says no one's welcome. You know what I mean? Like, get <laughs> yeah, out of Close my the city. door behind it. Yeah. It's not, I don't really feel that way. I just, I am not into people coming in like Columbus, right? Right. So, yeah, um, of course. You know, don't come in and rewrite the entire history and, and wipe everything that's been here for a long time out. You know, like when you move here, get into what's happening. See yeah. how you can be a p- part of it before you try to take it over and do something new. Um, which I think is a lot of what I've seen, um, a little bit of both. I've seen a little bit of both. Some people sure. that come in smartly, 
and with like a willing heart. Um, and then some yeah. people that just assume that we're sort of this podunk cow town that doesn't have anything. <laughs> right. And they just want to come in and take things over and, uh, you know, bring these things that have already been existing in, in whatever particular Denver way they've existed. Right. Let me show you the, let me show you Hicks. Yeah. Uh, in flyover country, right, right. The, the way we do things yeah. in you know in the real world, right, right? In, in in real cities. Um, <laughs> and I mean, also growing up in Denver, though, I think I've I've longed for it to be a real city for a long time. <laughs> there are certain things that I'm just like, that sort of frustrated me for a long time, like um, you know the fact that we have a train now that goes to the airport is very exciting to be God like, forbid. oh, we're a real city now. <laughs> you, know, there's, you know, like really like smart transportation, and some of the growth really is smart. You know, and. Uh, it was on Welton Street last night, and you know, growing up in the city, I remember well what Five Points has always been. Sure. And watching the tragedy of that die, and then watching the tragedy of it sit empty and vacant for a really long time, yeah. and not a lot of development, and not a lot of things happening, and just sort of watching, um, and and now watching it come alive again, but in a way that is um, interesting and terrifying <laughs> and right. heartbreaking in in a lot of in a lot of ways. Right. It's, it's sort of beautiful to see the space come alive again. I'd agree with you on that, yeah. But it's also a little scary. And and in general, I think a lot of the growth is scary because I just am not sure that there's a place for me in it. Oh, really? And that's where I don't I don't know if this if this city is still going to have a place for me um in another, you know, 5 years. Yeah, it well, it, I think your point is well articulated because you want your city to grow because the alternative, if it's shrinking or it's dying or people are moving away from it, that's probably worse. Right. Right? I think so, yeah. But in terms of rapid growth, you know, you're going to go through a lot of pains with that. And you have to be very conscientious and very careful that you're not displacing the people who are already here. Right. And I spoke with Jess Ward, who she's the executive director of City Wild. Mm -hmm. And that's a great organization that takes... You know, kids from Elyria or Swansea or Globeville, and it's a nonprofit that helps them experience the outdoors. Because right. if you're in the city, the mountains are in your backyard, but there are a lot of barriers, both real and financial and cultural, right. to getting you to experience that. So she works to, you know, to, to help with that issue. Right. And her point was that, you know, that area is kind of the next area that's targeted because it's one of the last affordable areas in Denver. Right. And so that in the West side, the West side, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I grew up in golden, so I know, you know, I've, I've seen, I think Brie referred to it. Someone said to her that, uh, like golden and Arvada and Aurora are like Denver's boroughs. And I go, okay, you've taken this too far. Yeah. <laughs> that's absurd. Uh, but. Yeah. And it's the sprawl is, I mean, it's almost preferable to the gentrification of the city. <laughs> I think in some spaces, uh, there was a Is few Is it the ago, less worse option? I, you know, I, hmm. so I had a block party on Welton Street a few years ago to try to breathe some life into the space. Um, and all the shops were open right. and it was just sort of this big, you know, like come to Welton, support the businesses that are here, have some fun. Um, got a jazz trio to play on a street corner, which makes sense considering Five Points is the of Harlem course. of the West, right? So right. Uh, the jazz trio is playing out on Welton Street Saturday afternoon, maybe 2 p.m. They're not plugged in. It's just, you know, three guys out there playing some jazz and uh, someone called the cops. What? So, <laughs> for a noise violation. Um, and they weren't even particularly loud. So it was really interesting to me. So in those spaces, <laughs> I kind of just wanted to talk to that resident and say, you know, they were a new resident. Um, they were not into what we were doing at all. And 
they didn't like the jazz. So I thought, you know, like Highlands Ranch is built for you, sweetheart. Like that's <laughs> what it's here for. That's part of the great thing about the sprawl. Like you don't actually, if you don't want to live in a city, you don't have to live in a city, right? Like that's right. what, it, like there's, there are many really quiet suburbs where there's like not a lot of nightlife or activity or live music on street corners. Like you don't have to be into those things and that's okay, but live in a space where those things are not going to happen. And so I'm very into that kind of growth. <laughs> like you guys that live over sense. there. Also, there's just the overall fact that I'm a city person. I grew up in Park Hill. I love this city. I love living here. Um, I would like to continue to afford living here. So yeah, no, that's, it's, that's one of from a pa- is, from a practical you know, perspective. Right, it's just very realistically. Um, I don't want to get priced out of my city. Um, yeah, no, and and we're getting close. And that, I mean, that makes sense. I grew up in Golden, and Golden is not noted for its diversity, or at least wasn't in the '80s and right. '90s. And now living in the city, you know, I like I like growing up where I don't see solely people who look like me. Right. You know, people who are of a very particular mindset. It's nice to get away from that. And I, I worry that if we grow the way that we're growing, to your point, that's exactly what we're going to lose. Right. So, And I also, I think, particularly Park Hill, and part of it is because this is where I'm from, but also I, as I've traveled all over the country, you know, and I've never really seen anything else quite like Park Hill with its level of socioeconomic diversity, mm. um, like not only racial diversity, right. uh, which is definitely changing rapidly um, and disappearing, it was much more diverse when I was growing up, but it's not, there's not a lot of neighborhoods where you're going to see, you know, mansions and projects in mm-hmm. walking distance from each other yeah, and have point. those kids go to school together. Yeah. Um, and that's what happened when I was growing up here. So it, you really like got to know a lot of different kinds of people and worked with them, uh, became yeah. friends with them. Right. So I had friends with like all kinds of different socioeconomic diversity, racial diversity. And that is something that you just don't see a lot of places. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. I mean, I, in terms of, you know, the mansions you drive down Montview right. and you see that and I mean, not, not a half mile away. You're absolutely right. You, you see, you know, small bungalows or you mm-hmm. see projects or, you know, there's rentals and right. yeah, it's, it, it is a remarkable place. I do love living right. here. So. so it's, yeah, it's definitely diverse. And I think that we all grow from that. Right. I think that, um, we all learn from each other. Right. You know, and I think that just sort of homogeneity is not great for growth and it's a little scary. No, or um, for building empathy. Right. Because, I mean, that's one of the aims of this show is just to give insight and, and to make jobs or people or, you know, career choices or lifestyles less frightening. Right. Because, you know, the, there's a statistic, and I can't cite it off the top of my head, but people who live in gated communities are typically, you know, they put up the gates to keep people out. Right. That makes them more afraid of the world. That Absolutely. doesn't make them feel more secure. It makes them feel more afraid. Right. Whereas if you're here and you interact with folks on a day-to-day basis, I remember uh, I was walking past like 28th and Fairfax, like there's that liquor store there. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure I could have bought drugs from that guy on the corner. Probably. But the thing is I was out walking my daughter and we waved good morning to each other, right. you know, it, and it, it's, and it's kind of, you, you know, when you're out and in, you live in a neighborhood amongst people, you know, who's genuinely dangerous and who's not. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, and you can wave hello. And after a while, you're just like, oh, there's such and such yeah. out here having his morning, running his <laughs> small illegal business, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Right. But you know who's who. And I think that for me, and again, it's how I grew up. So that to me is much safer when you recognize the faces around you. Yeah. than you know, I've lived in the suburbs before in, you know, the uh, 
the houses with the attached garage and you just literally have no idea who lives next door to you. You can (laughs) live there for years and never once see your neighbor. And that is really unusual and terrifying to me. Um, Well, it's like the concept of, you know, you're not afraid of the dark. You're afraid of what's in the dark. Right. And if you never leave your community or you never leave your house, the whole world might as well be dark. Right. And you're afraid of what's in it. So someone turns the light on, you don't know if they're friend or foe. Right. Whereas if you're out in the light all the time, you can differentiate that, which is exactly to your Absolutely. point. Absolutely. So I grew up in Park Hill, but right before high school, I moved in with my mother and stepfather in the suburbs. So I actually okay. graduated from Chatfield Senior High School. Oh, wow. All right. Uh, going from Stedman Elementary School to Gove Middle School. And Stedman then Elementary to, School? Yeah, like exactly. five blocks from here? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up here, and then at the end of eighth grade, I moved uh, to the suburbs. And it was a really jarring experience, you know, going from schools that were 70, 80, maybe 90% black to... A school that was, you know, ninety nine point nine percent white was I, was very jarring. It was also just a very crowded school at the time. Um, mm. That was a really growing area, and they didn't have enough schools at the time, so it was very very crowded. That we were having classrooms and trailers, and like, there were what, a lot like of temp buildings, that kind right, of thing. Yeah, exactly. So there was a lot trying to accommodate um, all of the people, but there was still. It wasn't even just the racial sameness, but the people sameness that was so overwhelming to me and right. really really terrifying and awful. Because not only did they, uh, they all grew up in the same space in the same sort of environment, right. had generally the same sort of cultural concepts and beliefs. Um, and like a short socioeconomic, right? right? Absolutely. They shop at the same stores. They dress the same. They right. walk the same. They talk the same. They're into the same things. They watch the same television shows. Like all of the sort of just this, that, that level of sameness. And I think that if I had not grown up in Park Hill and grew up in that kind of thing, being unlike that, it would have mm. probably made me completely crazy. And so I'm really, really grateful that I knew there was an out and I grew up in yeah. in something that let me know that um, it's okay to not fit in here because this is not the entire world. This is right. just Chatfield Senior High School and it's going to be over, you know, <laughs> soon. So let's just get through it, survive <laughs> and get back into the city where I belong. <laughs> right. So right. Well, how how was it for you doing that? I, I mean, did, was it survival mode? Was it? It was definitely survival mode. I learned that you could take the number 76 bus to the 16 bus to the 15 bus and then I'd be right back, right back home. <laughs> where things made um, sense. Right. So that was that was my weekend. And every single day in school, I would just, I made calendars on all of my notebooks and I just marked down the days until it was over. Wow. Um, I got a job. I I had skipped a grade early on, so I was already a little bit ahead. And then I got a job so I could um, pay for additional classes through the mail um, so I could graduate early. So I graduated at 16 and just got out of there the next day. Wow. So, okay. Sort of a weird hypothetical. If... Let's say this were possible, but you could give a message to the kids at a school like Chatfield Senior High. And this is obviously not to call them out because this this is something, you know, the cultural sameness exists in any number of schools uh, in, in any number of or any part of the country. Right. But if if you got a transfer student from another part of the country or another part of the world, what message would you give those kids to making that world a little less scary and a little bit less impenetrable for them. Is there something they could do? Is is there a way to be accommodating, be welcoming, and not make that feel like such an isolating experience? I would say that it is encouraged and ideal to be yourself and never apologize for it. Okay. And remember that high school is temporary. <laughs> All you have to do is survive it. If you survive it, you win. That's it. Right. Okay. 
So, I, I mean, that, that strikes me as, as an empowering message for someone going into that situation. But for those kids who are already there, is there anything they can do to, to make the person coming in feel less? I think that there is not really a lot that can be done. Um, I think that the best thing they probably can do is examine who they are and be that. Um, because I don't believe that that sameness is genuine. I think it's manufactured. Mm. And so that might be, that might be a survival tactic in its own. Most definitely. Right. And if you, if you sort of grow up in that and you live in this like school of fish, you know, you swim with Mm. the fish and that's what you do. And that's how you try to avoid being eaten. Right. These are things that you do. (laughs) Right. You know, the, there's, what is it? The hammer that sticks up, gets nailed down. Right. Oh yeah. That, yeah. The Um, nail that sticks up. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, so there's that sort of kind of concept. So I think that, you know, don't be afraid to be the nail that sticks out. Hmm. Um, you know, be who you are and it makes it a little bit less, you know, terrifying for the person coming in seeing everyone being the same. Right. Yeah. A Um, a wall of sameness. Right. Yeah. So don't be the same. Be who you are. Um, and whoever that accurately and genuinely is. Wow. Be interesting. Absolutely. Be interesting. And I have two young girls and they they are interesting and they are quirky and I mean one of them's only two months old, so there's yeah, only... but they are born with their personality. Exactly, they yeah. Are. And she is fiery. <laughs> so which is fantastic. But uh sitting in my basement with Susie Q. Smith, poet, musician, activist, executive director, did you say? Yes. Of Poetry Slam Inc. Yes. And uh, you work at Youth on Record. You have a lot of titles. I do. So, and you got plenty going on. Many things. So, I it's it's a real pleasure to get to sit down with you because, as I told you right before we turned the mics on, I don't have a lot of experience in the poetry slam world, which I would say is probably what you're best noted for. Indeed. Okay. So, uh, I was curious if just to start, because I don't know how many of my listeners actually have experience with this as well. If you could give us a little bit of insight into what that world is like and what's entailed and how does a poetry slam work? Sure. So poetry slam is a specific event. Uh, it was started in the mid eighties in Chicago. It was invented by a Chicago construction worker named Mark Smith, which is what we say at every poetry slam so that people know <laughs> what's going on. So it's, it's focused on performance as well as the writing, right? So it's a, right. it's a particular art form that focuses on both and places equal emphasis on the two. So rather than poets reading and writing poetry for themselves and each other mm-hmm. in this very, very tiny little world of people that are actually really into poetry right. um, academically, the concept behind slam poetry was making it accessible and interesting and engaging for absolutely everyone. So the way that that was accomplished and continues to be accomplished is by choosing five random people from the audience and making them judges. <laughs> wow. And so it's like the poetry slam Olympics, right? So, yeah. um, so that's what happens. People come up, they perform their work and the judges decide how they feel about it and they'll give it, you know, a 1.4 or a 9.8 or whatever they want. So, wow. uh, and then, you know, generally a person with the highest scores at the end of the night wins and they win something depending on the poetry. Slam. So is it like a, did I see, is it like a tournament? It is a tournament. So, okay. so there, there are poetry slams that happen all over the world. Um, but that's specifically what defines slam is that it's a competition, right? That's focused right. very much on performance as well as writing. So, and engaging everyone rather than just poets. Uh, so that's the idea is that it should be accessible to anyone that walks in the room. And so that's why we choose random people from the audience. There are definitely, wow. you know, people that would prefer to have experts, you know, <laughs> judging them. Um, but the point is that it shouldn't be about experts, right? You shouldn't need a PhD to enjoy a poem. So either your poems are, you know, engaging the audience or they're not. And that's just how it goes. 
Um, so it's like a meritocracy. Very in, much so. In terms of, okay, Very I get much it. so. And it changes all the time. Like those of us that have slammed for a long time, like we know you can do the exact same poems in the exact same way in the exact same room and five different people the following night are okay. going to give you totally different scores, right? So it just, it is, you know, sort of silly and arbitrary, but it's a way for them to engage and be involved in the process. And it really brings the audience in it because the show is about the audience every bit as much as it is about the poets. And that's really key is like engaging them and speaking to them directly. So... Uh, after it started in Chicago, it started to spread out a little bit. And now in North America, we have 110 certified poetry slams that are certified through Poetry Slam Inc., which means that they run regular poetry slams all over the place. And then they select their best representatives to come to the tournaments, right? So there are wow. international and national tournaments that they se- select their representatives. And one of those big tournaments is going to happen in Denver next year. So that's the national poetry slam. And, and it's you, the and largest. You were responsible for bringing that here, right? Indeed. Po- wow. Fantastic. And what what went into getting Denver uh, that, you know, that type of event, uh, an event of that scope? So we hosted the Women of the World Poetry Slam a few years ago, and that was our first really big event. That was the largest poetry slam event that Colorado had seen at that point. And that is... Big, but not nearly as big as the National Poetry Slam. National Poetry Slam right. is about five times bigger. So it was really kind of so. So I ran that, and it was you know sort of testing the waters to see if we were really ready for this event. Is the city going to show up? Is the community going to show up? Like, are people going to be into this? Right. So mm-hmm. I mean, we obviously have the venues, and we're growing enough that we have all of the basic logistical things that we need. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have great hotels, and we have great spaces, and all kinds of different things for people to do. Beautiful weather, et cetera, et cetera. So, and we're very centrally located, so people can get here from wherever. We have a great airport, so you don't have to, like, you know, right. over the river and through the woods kind of thing, right? <laughs> it's very easy to get to Denver for most people. So though all of those things were great, and I think it was really just testing, like, are people going to actually buy tickets and show up to this event? Is Poetry Slam something that enough people are into to make this sustainable? And it was. It was really incredible. Uh, you know, things sold out. Wow. I actually personally worked the door at finals, and people were trying to bribe me for tickets. Um, but <laughs> that we that were had at, to be a great feeling. It though. really was. But we were at fire code capacity at the right. Denver Art Museum, so there was nothing else that could be done. You can't and, fight the fire marshal. Right. Yeah. And it was great. It was like, I'm just, I'm so glad that you're excited and that you want to be here. And that makes me really happy. So at that point I knew that the city was ready. And then it just was a matter of getting the organization ready and also getting our community ready of people to work on this. Right. So, um, I'm the driving force behind a lot of it, but I definitely can't do it by myself. So I needed to make sure that we had people in this city that were willing to do this work and help me with it. So, so, um, you know, after, you know, several conversations and a lot of work and a lot of planning, we have a really, really great team. And, you know, there are 20, 25 people that are working on bringing the National Poetry Slam to Denver. Wow. That is, I mean, that's really cool. I saw some of your videos on YouTube. So I I looked them up before we met because we'd never met before we're sitting here uh, before each other right now. And... I, I hope that you are flattered by this comparison because it, it is intended as flattery. I grew up loving punk rock and punk rock is just, it's near and dear to my heart. It's one of my favorite things. And listening to you deliver poems made me feel the same thing as I feel when I listen to punk rock. That makes me very happy. Thank you. Because you're, and you're welcome. Your poems are explosive. I mean, they, they are, it's like a main line of adrenaline listening to you. Just because it's so, it's so from the heart. It's so propulsive. It's so, 
intense and you know they they are to be reckoned with i mean it is that fair to say is that a fair characterization of your work i think that's definitely true thank you uh that's that's how it feels for me for sure when i write them so kind of the way that i describe a lot of my writing process is that once a feeling is too large for me to contain it in my body anymore then it has to become something and it explodes into some form of art uh generally poems and so that's uh, they they explode out of me most of the time. Wow, what, what a great characterization of art too! Once it becomes too big to be within me, it has to come out and manifest as something else. Exactly. And frequently that that happens as poems for you. One thing I was curious about is, and one thing I was impressed by was, I mean, your style is very sort of rapid fire. Indeed. And. When you were prepping a poem, when you were getting ready to go before an audience, and I'm curious about this also because I teach public speaking and I've done all sorts of media training and I've taught college students public speaking, how much prep work goes into like practicing delivery, practicing cadence, finding the right rhythm in terms of conveying what it is you want to convey that is at the heart of of a poem that you do? I would say per piece. There, There are many, many hours that go into that. aspect of it so um you know it's it's a matter of repetition looking like i've completely lost my mind Uh, there's a lot of just pacing and talking to myself right and running it over and over and over and over and over um yeah and then when it comes to competition because uh, it's a high volume of words too it is and and it it, it's a level of precision with language Indeed. That uh, that I think is is quite exquisite. Just listening to from a pure sort of form perspective, my guess was going to be a lot of practice. But when you deliver it, it looks like you're doing it for the first time. It, you know? it should feel that way. <laughs> right. If you're doing it right, right? <laughs> right. But uh, there's a certain amount of um, yeah. There's a lot of a lot of prep work that goes into it. And in Poetry Slam, particularly when you're working with a team um, for National Poetry Slam, there's a coach. And that coach is okay. going to not only, you know, walk with you through your memorization process, but also pull out those lines. And it's very, it's very performance coaching. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of strategy involved. You know, it's very, very competitive. And so there's sure. someone that's going to, you know, and it, when you have a great coach, they're going to tell you how to hold that word or how to stretch or sustain this syllable or where to go with your volume. Uh, there are people right. that perform and write pieces and perform them together, you know, so you have as many as five people on stage sometimes. Right, that they've written and performed something together. And so that person is going to decide. Uh, the coach will tell you, you know, which voices go where sometimes, you know, who needs right. to be a little louder, who needs to step back, who needs to. They'll set the pacing, the volume, all of those things are, are meticulously coached and, re- and rehearsed. Do you takes, do coaching? I do. Yeah. So, um, and I don't have as much time to coach as, anymore. I have coached Denver Miners Disturbance Youth Poetry Slam team for several years. Um, but we've handed that over now to minor disturbance alumni. So that is completely youth driven and youth led, uh, completely by minor disturbance. So that's people between 13 and 19 years old wow. are on the team. And then as people age out of it, then we retain them as coaches, as teachers, as a lot of different things. So it's a, it's an organization that's really built by a lot of different hands, uh, particularly Ken Arkind, who is a dear friend of mine, who is yeah. also a poet and recently moved to New Zealand. Um, so that's where he is My. now. He's, yeah, he's been there, I guess, now for almost two years, but it still feels recent for me. Well, still sure. fresh. <laughs> <laughs> and so he definitely had a lot to do with, uh, founding and shaping the organization. Uh, Eddie Eichler also is a founder. But at this point, it's completely run by the youth, and I am just around as an advisor. Mm. Uh, so I, I hang out with them about once a month and say, okay, so these are some things that may or may not work. 
Uh, these are some opportunities and I'm around to, you know, mentor and help. Um, I did coach a bit this past summer though, just they needed a little more support. So coaching right. the thing I've done a lot. Um, and it's great to have a good coach, but it's like sort of having, uh, you know, it's like having a theater director, but right. also it's, it's very, you know, some of them are very, very sports-like yeah. and they have, you know, very specific, it's very formulaic, like, okay, first round, we got to do something that's like this and second round, it's got to be, you know, this way. Sure. So there are a lot of different things that come into it. Um, it just really depends on the personality of the coach, but the level of rehearsal that happens, uh, like a Denver slam team is typically going to, by the, by before they go to the National Poetry Slam, they've probably spent 20, 30 hours a week together for about three or four months. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, that That is some very intense coaching. Yes. And, <laughs> that's <laughs> um, that, a lot of rehearsal. That's a lot of practice. I, I think back to when I was a public speaking instructor and I would have students going, you know, how do I improve my delivery? How do I improve my volume? And I said, okay, well, let's start with the writing. What do you have, what do you have written? Because if it's shitty... A, a good delivery isn't necessarily going to say that you can only polish this so much. Right. And, you know, you, you're going to have a much lower ceiling if the writing's not in order. Super agree. But to, to get them to the next level, depending on the student, I mean, you have to take a variety of tactics. As a good coach, you know, some people want you to be sort of aggressive with them and get in their face. Others, you have to take a much softer approach and you have to guide them by the hand and bring them to where they want to be. Right. I guess, I guess my question is when you are doing something with, and by the way, the, the name poetry slam, yes. it's, it's a very sort of in your face title, you know, exactly. you, you hear slam and that connotes, uh, aggression, you know, right. that, that connotes confrontation, right. that kind of thing. And so watching you online, would you say your style is indicative of what you can expect from a poetry slam? Or are there a variety of, of tactics, uh, not tactics, but a, a variety of styles that, that are, say, different from yours? Oh, there are many, many styles in Poetry Slam. So really, I think the word slam really, it, it is very in your face. And I think in that sense, the work is all going to be impactful, right? So you right. can expect all of it to be impactful, right? Some of it is going to be hilarious. Right. Some of it's going to be just really, really raw. Some of it's going to be deeply emotional. Some of it's going to be furious, right? They're, you're going to have an entire range of emotion. And really, and, and also I think because, because Poetry Slam is so inclusive, right? You can just walk into a Poetry Slam, sign up, and you're in. And that's it. There are no gatekeepers. There's no one saying you've got to qualify to, right. you know, to get on the mic, right? You just get on the mic. And then either the audience digs you or they don't, and that's it. And if they don't dig you, they keep coming back until they do. <laughs> Just keep getting at bats, right? Right. Or, you know, I've seen, I've known people that, you know, slammed for years and never make it out of the first round, but they're still into it. And that's, and it's, it's just a sort of a silly game in that capacity, right? Sure. Um, but it's open to everyone. And because of that, you find that everyone comes. And so every possible type of person that you can imagine yeah. exists somewhere in the poetry slam world. So, and their poems are going to be reflective of that, right? So, sure, um, yeah. so every, every possible style of poetry you can imagine exists in poetry slam. And I mean, forgive the ignorance of that question, if oh, you no. would, please. No, not at all. And I, it's very common. I have to explain to people, you know, sometimes when you say poetry slam, people assume like it's sort of like a, an MC battle, but with poets, right? So they're just sort of like <laughs> right. freestyling these great insults at each other. <laughs> right, like well, a snap battle or something. Right, you know, and, it, and that could be fun, but that's not actually what it is. Really what it means is just that different poets are going to bring their best work. They're going to perform it for the audience. The audience is going to decide what they want, what they want to hear more from and what they don't. Sure. I, and that makes sense to me. I mean, probably the, and, and, you know, we're going to, we're going to delve back a little bit further, but in terms of poetry slams, I would say 
the most culturally culturally well known, if if you know anything about it at all, would be Russell Simmons. Right, right, because sure. there was Deaf Comedy Jam, and then I remember he did he did Deaf Poetry Jam exactly. too, right? Deaf Poetry Jam was a thing that happened, and I remember that uh, like on HBO, and I'm like, Deaf Poetry Jam, what is he talking? And I watched it, and when you get a Russell Simmons production, you're going to get probably a very specific type of performer, or at least that expectation of right. that type of performer. If right. you watch Deaf Comedy Jam, I mean, that's sort of where that question springs from, right? And so. No, it's it's a hugely diverse community, and the poems are equally diverse. That's fantastic. So in terms of your personal poetry, because the, the ones that I've seen, and I've only seen a small sampling, but they're very pointed, and they're, you know, they're very they, – they tackle issues of culture and identity. And do you ever get reactions, or do you ever get people who may be uninitiated in what a poetry slam is – you know, what are the reactions from people when you tell them that you're a slam poet? You know, how, is is there anything that you need to overcome in terms of perception or, you know, are people fearful? I would say not anymore at this point in my life. And it's probably because I live in a bubble that okay. generally everyone around me. Are you at your a, own Chatfield High School? Pretty good, I mean, I just I'm in my own little it's. Because my work is so much of my life and has been for such a long time, that sure. most of the people that I'm around are already somewhat familiar with with me and with what I do and what my life is. So there's not as, as much engagement as there used to be with people that are brand new to it. Right. That's, which is still fun for me when I get to be around people that are brand new to it. But if you're sitting next to someone on an airplane and mm -hmm. you strike up a conversation mm -hmm. and it's some... Call it, and I, you know, I'll do a little bit of stereotyping here. But if it's like some middle-aged white woman mm -hmm. um, who who lives, say, in a gated community, right? And you know, you talk about the fact that you're a slam poet, and you know, you're you're talking about cops killing black people, that kind of thing, right? Is is there ever is like what is the reaction from someone like that, or does that happen all that frequently? My conversations on airplanes are generally limited. <laughs> um, is that by design? Yes, very much so. Um, and because those conversations can get very complicated quickly. Uh, sure. And then you, you can't move. You're next to them now for, <laughs> you know, hours. But when I do, I think that people are generally curious about it, you know. Sure. Um, and they're, they've never heard about anything like that. And they're just they're like, wait, so you get... People, people pay you to read poems. Like, what is, what is that? That's it. <laughs> explain to people that yeah, that's what I, that's what yeah. I do. Like, people, you know, fly me out to places so I can read them poems. They pay me for the poems. They, they buy my books. It, sometimes wow. CDs, you know, whatever <laughs> those things are. And you know, and then, uh, <laughs> then I go back home and I pay my rent, and it was very exciting. That's <laughs> a real thing. That, you know, I think I've known who I am for a pretty long time, and so. In high school, if you would have asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, you know, I was definitely a poet. Yeah. And very clear about that. Um, and other things too, but definitely a poet, right? Like sure. my, my, my intention was to be a superstar poet. That was, that was the plan. I'm pretty sure that's the language I used when I was 15. Very nice. And superstar so, poet. I like that. So to be, and, and people, you know, thought it was comical at the time. <laughs> and at the time it probably was, um, because there weren't any in the nineties that I was aware of. Right. Um, right. Sure. So it was, you know, it was sort of felt like I was inventing something, but I knew that that was sort of the life that I needed to carve out for myself. And it's, you know, it's taken many years to get to a space now where it's just like, well, no, I'm, 
I'm, I'm a professional poet, actually. It's, it's what I do. And, you know, in the circles of po- people that follow poetry, I'm, I'm pretty well known among them. So I think very much you so. know, sort of mission accomplished in that, <laughs> in that regard. In terms of checking off that life goal. Yeah. You know, and it's not, uh, it's, it's great that it's not that sort of superstardom or fame. Right. That, that like real famous people have to deal with, you know, like it's a certain amount of notoriety. And so there's no paparazzi. Outside right. House, you know, like there's, thing, yeah. you know, the people that, that need to know kind of know. <laughs> and at the same time, I'm never bothered when I don't want to be right. So uh, there's a comic. I can't think of her name right now, but it's one of my favorite quotes is uh, about about careers is being a writer is the best type of fame. It's enough to get you a good table at a restaurant, but not enough to get you interrupted while you eat. <laughs> and it's, it's so perfect and true. That's fantastic. <laughs> That I, that's the type of fame everyone wants. Right. You know, where it's just like your name weighs something in the spaces where you need it to. <laughs> but at the same time, like no one bothers you. And that's right. pretty great. <laughs> so. Yeah. It, well, it's it's almost like you're an old time radio star yeah. in that regard, you know, right. where you can slip by someone in the hallway and they don't know who you are. Exactly. Right? You know, but maybe they recognize your voice so you can like do the voice for them or something. Yeah. But, uh, and, and then and they you can know. watch them make the face. Yeah. Right. And then and then they know who you are and they're really excited. Um, but you can also still live a normal life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, so being a, you know, I would put in quotes, famous poet <laughs> right. like, is a pretty like ideal kind of fame. Yeah, no, I, and I, th- I think it's a pretty great kind of uh, fame because you get to, and especially in this genre, because you'll hear things from particularly actors, you know, if, if they get typecast in a certain role. Then it's like to maintain their profession, they have to keep doing that type of role. Yes. But in terms of what you do, it sounds like you have a lot of autonomy in terms of the types of poems you want to do, the types of venues you want to engage in. It just basically a, a lot of a lot of freedom over the work that you choose to engage with. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Um, and that's the thing that I can't really even imagine another life anymore. Um, but I've had you know complete autonomy over my life and what happens in it for many years now. And I can't really, I, you know, it took a long time to get to that place. Yeah. Someone uh, sent me a survey. They were working on a project a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was speaking at uh, 9 to Five's annual gala. And in preparation for that, one of the other speakers was sending out a survey. They asked questions about um, whether you feel sort of empowered in in the organizations that you work with. And do you feel represented in leadership? And do you feel, you know, culturally comfortable there and welcomed and et cetera, and et cetera. And, I, you know, all of my answers were like, oh, yeah, it's amazing. It's great. It's wonderful. Like, no, it's perfect. And they were and they wrote back like, wow, we've never seen responses like this. This is not what we expected. Why do you think your experience is so different than so many people's? And it's just that I'm very fortunate to work with organizations that I've personally had a hand in in, in creating their values in, right. in building the leadership and like designing what that organization looks and feels like and organizations that are culturally responsive so as new people come in understanding what their needs are and how that fits into the organization and adjusting accordingly right making ourselves accessible and and malleable so that everyone can find a place to feel welcome within us right because equity yeah. is just very important to me so yeah no 100% hearing you describe that was it a natural progression for you to move into the educational space too, in addition to the performance space? Definitely. And I think it's a perfect balance for me, um, you know, with, with all of the different things that my brain does. And I think that also, I mean, I've, I've done the tour thing for a while. Um, and when you're touring all the time, like touring is, um, particularly lonely and strange life. Um, if you are, especially if you're a solo artist like me and you're traveling everywhere, all the time on your own 
And the only people that you're really engaging with are strangers on airplanes <laughs> and audiences. And in this specific art form, the audiences can range in some very unusual ways. So sometimes they're excited about who you are. They all know who you are. It's sort of like red carpet treatment and you show up and you're a superstar and that's really exciting. Yeah, you're coming in like pre-vetted. Right. And then there are some times where, you know, you show up and maybe one or two people, the ones that actually like booked the show know who you are and they're really excited. And then there are the rest of the people who have no idea what's happening or why someone is reading poems at them. And there's, you know, <laughs> And so there's those sorts of very, very strange engagements. And so when that is your entire life, it can make you have a really unhealthy relationship, I think, with mm. your with your work and with the people around you. Sure. And it's a particular kind of loneliness. And it also, I think, is not healthy for the ego. Mm. So I think that teaching is something that is super balancing where you're genuinely engaging. And it's about dialogue, not monologue, right? Because essentially when you're a touring poet, you just go around, and, you know, being like a comic, same thing. You know, you're, yeah. you're traveling all the time giving monologues to people. So you <laughs> right. just walk, you go all over the country just talking to yourself all the time. And, <laughs> well, yeah, and, 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 and what's the, uh, what's, what's the old, uh, cliche? Been around the world, haven't seen a thing. Right. 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 You see the inside of whatever venue you're in. Right. And the inside of the hotel room. Yes. And I, it reminds me when I traveled for business and, you know, I saw the inside of a lot of hotel ballrooms. Yeah. But, uh, you know, not a lot else. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that you're describing here too is, when you're touring and you're performing, you are basically pulling from within yourself and you were giving it to the audience. Exactly. And at the end of that tour, a lot of times the well is empty. And right. And even if it's not empty, it's filled with like a, a pretty unhealthy worship. <laughs> right. And that's not great for the ego. And it also kind of creates this sort of... Uh, sense of obligation, right? You know, when people are telling you, you know, sort of pouring their hearts out at the end because you're ripping yourself open and giving them like all of this, these depths. And so naturally connecting to the, their depths and they want to give that back to you and their stories of like how you moved them and yeah. in these really, really deep ways, um, which is great and important and necessary, right? But it can create a really strange hierarchy mm. um, that is confusing because I think that we all have sort of these wells within us and we all have the ability to express and, and use them. Um, right. So I don't think there's anything particularly special about me in that capacity. Right. It's just, yeah, they, they it. just manifest in different ways. Right. For all sure. of us. But when you have, so, it, but, but when you sort of have like fans, I guess is that sort of concept. Right. And the only relationships you have as you're traveling around are like either with complete strangers that are serving you or fans <laughs> Or, um, you know, then the stranger on the airplane is the closest you have to like sort of an equal peer. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not, it it's, doesn't make you the best version of yourself, I think. Right. So when you have uh, students, you know, particularly like middle school or high school students who do not care at all about who you are or what you do or why you're there. Right. They're just trying to make it. <laughs> they're just trying to survive like that really critical, difficult time of their lives. Right. And they're trying to like not be weird and not get picked on and like, you know, just sort of make it and get into this weird space where they're, you know, coming to this consciousness of their adulthood, but not having any real access to it. <laughs> it's, it's, right. it's a really challenging time. So they're so obsessed with like their own development in that moment that they really don't care who you are. Which is great for humility. Um, sure. And you've got to like, and, and find ways to engage them, right? So that's part of it is like, it just sort of like balances the ego, I think, in a really healthy way like right. when you're doing that. But at the same time, also you get to engage in dialogue rather than monologue, right? And it's not about you. Yeah. It's actually about them in, in every possible way. And so you just, it's a great way to get over yourself. Hmm. But also use your strengths and your talents, you know, to, to bring the best out of them, right? But it, you see like the larger picture that way. 
Um, so I think that's been the balance of my career for you know, the last decade or so. And then eventually I got into the executive director role at Poetry Slamming. Uh, I first started serving on the board. And then when the executive mm-hmm. director stepped down a couple of years ago, we just kind of all knew <laughs> that the job needed to be mine um, and that I needed to just kind of step into that. And it, I think the work that I've been doing for a long time sort of helped me to see all sides of different things and, and kind of made me uniquely qualified to step into the role of running the organization. So, um, you know, really working with our community of poets, it's a completely member-driven organization, right? So all of our member poets and understanding what their needs are and having been in their shoes really specifically multiple times as a competitor myself, as a performer myself, right? So, and someone that's, you know, done all, worked in all different levels of the tournament and et cetera, Um, but also someone that understands like sort of So the need to engage, but also um, the pressure to engage and all of those things and also just sort of running a business and and allowing that to be, you know, the best possible experience for everyone involved. Is the business side of it, was it challenging like using those muscles? Because those are slightly different muscles than creating or competing or... It's it's sort of even therapeutic for me because that part of me exists so deeply. So before I was... Uh, full time working as an artist. Uh, I was an account executive. In, <laughs> I very, really? Very deeply in the business world. For, yeah. An account executive for what? Yeah. Like, uh, I worked in the food business. So, really? uh, you know, I sold large volumes of food essentially. <laughs> wow. So, um, and so like what, uh, what was involved in that role? Like what, it, like what did you do? Oh, that's, uh, so working the first was, um, I worked with Shamrock Foods for about maybe seven years, something like that. And that's a that's a crazy job. That's the craziest <laughs> job that I, I think anyone can ever have. Really? Um, Why? Selling food to restaurants. Because, well, you sell everything to restaurants, right? Everything you can use in a restaurant, you sell. It's extremely competitive. What, um, like sugar packets and silverware? So and everything, like- yeah. Every possible. So all of the food items as well as, you know, like the... The floor mats, the dishwashing soap, every possible thing that can <laughs> the be used in a restaurant, mats, the... all of it. Wow. All of it. Okay. So, so it's, okay, wow. And it's, it's horrendously competitive. Um, Cutthroat? So there was, there was one account that I was going after for a very long time. It's a huge account, belonged to my competitor. Um, I went in there every single day at noon for a year before they gave me the time of day. Yeah. So I finally got the account. When I got the account, uh, my competitor spat on my windshield. Oh my god! But <laughs> <laughs> when you're when you're when you work, you know you're you're going to work. If you're going to be successful, you got to probably put in about eighty hours a week. You're working all job? the time. Yeah, you Yikes. work all the time. Um, anytime you go to a restaurant of any kind for any reason, the first thing you're going to do is pick up the sugar packets and see who they're doing business with. <laughs> right? That's it's an automated thing. Like it was, it was such a part of my life that my friends, my family, when they went out to a restaurant, they would, that's the first thing they did when they went to a restaurant was check the sugar packets, see whose logos on there and call me and be like, Hey, there's this new space over at da, da, da. Or, you know what I mean? My it was, God. It was <laughs> profoundly competitive and it's, it's, it's a brutal cutthroat and you're also working on a hundred percent commission. So, oh, geez. Okay. Yeah. So it's very real life, you know, which is why my competitor was so upset because, you know, I took a lot of money directly yeah. out of their pocket and put it into mine. Um, were you good at it? Sounds like you were good at it. I, I was good at it. Yeah. Yeah. I was very good at it. Was it tough to walk away from that money? Oh, no. No, because, um, well, there, yes and no. Uh, there are, there are a number of, it's a multifaceted answer. Uh, so I worked 
in, in the sort of in the crazy food business for a long time. And then I was also, and then I started to scale that back as I was getting more work as an artist. Okay. So yeah. I started scaling it back and scaling it back and scaling it back. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, I finally got to the point with, um, you know, my last account executive job where I was meeting with my boss and he wanted more time from me. Jeez. And I more than the eighty. You he were... wanted he wanted more time, and you know, even was talking to me about you know my focus, which was true. My focus was definitely split between that work and my and my work. Um, and he wanted my focus to be entirely on that work. Um, he act- actually asked me to print out our company's mission statement and frame it and hang it up in my living room at home. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is what I said, right? What, I left. What, uh, what an unusual at, motivation yeah. tactic. And at that point, I looked at the clock and I said, I think it's just, let's call the time of death. I don't work here anymore. Like, yeah. this is it. So the challenging part, you know, I mean, I, you know, I had a company car and a gas card and, you oh, know, yeah. laptop and cell phone. So I had to turn over all of those things. And so your personal overhead was, was very low. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so I was, you know, very done at that point. Like, so that was, you know, a challenging, that's how done I had to be that I let go of, you know, a yeah. company car and gas card and you know, all of those things. You know? So, so I had to dive in pretty deeply as an artist. And so, um, I got another like sort of job job. And was able to balance that job with my, with my growing career. Yeah. Um, but then I was in the balance of those two things, right? So I'm also a single mother and I it was not uncommon at this point for me to go to work all day, go to the airport, go do a show, catch the red eye, come home and be back at work the next morning, right? So. Good God. That was a life that I lived for a while, uh, for maybe a year, two years, which is, ridiculous right um but they were also like the, at the other company they were pretty cool about you know when i needed time they gave it to me that's nice. um so they knew that you know they were getting a pretty good bargain having me work for them <laughs> and, right. so, and so generally what i asked for you know they they usually accommodated so if i you know needed to go teach if i got an opportunity to go teach a workshop somewhere or uh you know go do a show somewhere be gone on the road for a couple of weeks you know i'd just take a laptop with me and work where i was and you know they were generally pretty cool about it um, wow so in that i was still working a ridiculous number of hours and eventually just got too sick to do both um, and sure. so then I really had to walk away from the corporate gigs and yeah. the job jobs just weren't going to work for me anymore. My body would not allow me to do it. And I'm a bit of a workaholic. So, you know, if my body will let me, I'll easily, you know, I wake up and work and put in 20 hour days pretty regularly. So yeah, you'll, you'll work yourself to death. right? Yeah. So, and, and I, and especially now because I love what I do. Right. So oh, I, really, sure. I love my work and there's so much work to be done that, you know, I can put in 18, 20 hour days every day. <laughs> so, so it takes a lot of practice and careful thought and work for me to not do that and have to force myself to like walk away. Do you have to, do you do like practice downtime or yes. like scheduled yes. downtime? Yes. Wow. Very much so. That And that can be challenging too, because yeah. I made the leap. And one of the themes of this show is almost everyone I've talked to who is working in something that they love, because, you know, I'm not talking to people who are unhappy in their gigs, right. you know, that. It's not going to make for very compelling episodes. And if you want to do that, just go to any pub on a Friday night. Yeah, and you can hear all about it. Yeah, you, you can hear people from any number of unhappy careers. But the common denominator is most people, when they are working a job of their dreams, and I would say this is job of your dreams. Absolutely. It started out almost as a side hustle for them. Right. You know, and, and they're doing it in addition to whatever it was that made them money. Right. But they all come to a point where they have to make the leap. Yeah. And so the leap is terrifying. Oh, it is. And when I started this show, I was working a corporate gig and just doing this show on the side. Came time to make the leap. The leap is terrifying. Yes. The the leap is is horrific. But 
one guest on this show, and I think he was episode seven, I want to say. So early on, he said, leap and the net will appear. Now, that's not to say that, that you're going to get caught and saved and someone's going to guide you. You know, a flight of angels will not sing thee to thy rest, right? right? But well, They might. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? But, uh, <laughs> but the point is, it, you know, if you're passionate about it and you work hard and suddenly you leap, like, you will work that much harder. Right. When it becomes the only option. Yeah. Uh, then the, success yeah, the, happens, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know I mean? like, it's just like it's like, well, this it's this or die. So I is this. <laughs> yeah, I better it's, start flapping my arms right, here. You know, like, and so you find ways to make it work. Um, and you got to get creative. But that's also true. I think when you work for yourself or when you work from home, and you know, people sort of kind of got like sometimes you know make comments like, oh, it must be nice. Oh, you sit around and write poems all day. Hmm. <laughs> so it's not work. And those are those are interesting conversations to engage in. But I think that, uh, you know, when you work for yourself, you get to like choose which 20 hours a day you're going to work, which exactly. <laughs> so that's really what happens. And that's so. really funny because I was just thinking this yesterday. Yesterday, I, I worked my ass off. And at the end of the day, I remember thinking, I'm like, okay, did I do enough today? Like, did I, yeah. get, did I get enough done today? But I compare that against my average day in corporate where I was busy all the time, but I felt like I accomplished very little. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And I don't miss anything about my corporate gig, but... There were days where I'd show up and I'd be hungover or not feeling it or whatever. And you can really skate. Yeah, just like, dial it in. Yeah. And yeah. there are some times where that does sound remotely tempting to just go in. You just go into some office somewhere. And mark time. You just have your body be there for eight hours a day. You don't <laughs> and get you know, paid for have it. all of your work be directed by someone else. You don't have to put any brain power into it at all, really. You just kind of like just sort of, you know, like. Yeah, it's a huge machine. And yeah, you just kind of go plug yourself into the machine and then make like way more money than you make for yourself in many, many cases. Like right. I know that I could, if I, if I rejoin the corporate world, I could work not nearly as hard and with like much less personal investment oh, yeah. and make a lot more money. However, you know, it, it's, it still costs you something, right? You know, yeah. and it, co- it would cost me my autonomy. It would cost me a lot of my identity. It would cost me a lot of, from my spirit and which is my overall well being, right? Yeah. And um, the fire dies down too. Yeah. You know, and I think that it's just, it would be sort of, uh, you know, in some senses, you know, kind of a spiritual suicide mm. if I, if I rejoin them and I just don't feel like, you know, I, I feel so connected to my work and to my work is not just, um, you know, my job, it's very much my, my life purpose. Yeah. And so when you're living in that and you're aware of it and you're connected to it, it's, it's not really possible to do anything else. No, I, I'm inclined to agree with you and your term spiritual suicide is both totally eviscerating and just beautifully poignant, you know, because that, that can be what it is. Right. A lot of people will work in corporations and that is their dream. Yeah. And that's fine. Right. Like you, you want to run a business, you want to make you, you a billion dollars. Yeah. Well, and, and not only that, but you're happy to go to work every day and you work hard, you leave it there right. and that's, that's right. all you want to do. Right. And that's not true, of course, for everyone that works in the corporate world. No, right? no. You but know, there are but definitely for some people it is. that work really intensely hard. And, you know, I think, oh, well, even when I was in the corporate world, right, I, I it was my life at that time. Um, sure. Unfortunately, you know, but it really, <laughs> it's not really unfortunate. I mean, there are, there are definitely a lot of reasons to be involved in a lot of businesses, you know, and, you know, but it's important to understand what your place is and understand what your work is. Right. Yeah. And even that I don't really regret. Um, it's. I learned so much, right? It was just sort of this like very hands-on MBA kind of program that, and, you know, having to 
live on, you know, hundred percent commission definitely trained me to a place where like, okay, so I'm responsible for how much money I make yeah. and you eat what you kill. That's what I'm going to do all the time. So, okay, good to know. Like if there's money coming in, it's cause I made it. And if there's not, it's cause I didn't. So let's just, yeah. like, let's deal with that. Um, and what that looks like. So it definitely made me a lot more, um, specifically responsible for my own income and survival. That's good. Um, you know, I, and I think back to my time, I dealt with a lot of sort of existential unhappiness that later turn into existential dread, right. you know, where you, you're driving in your car and you're going, Oh my God, another day I can't do this. Yeah. But I look back on it and there were things I learned about the way the business world works or the way to interact with people or how to manage multiple personalities, uh, w- within an organization that I use all the time now. Right. So I look back on it and I go, okay, it wasn't time wasted. Right. It was time invested exactly. so that I could do something better. Exactly. And I think, and even in those times, you know, particularly like in the last job job that I had, my constant reminder to myself during those days when I was, you know, again, like, you know, going to work all day, traveling to, you know, Boston or something, doing a show and coming back yeah. and being back at work. And I would just remind myself while I was at work, you know, doing this really basic job was that, you know, this is just financing my real life. That's all I'm doing right, right now is financing my actual life. This is, you know, my Clark Kent identity, you know, <laughs> right. at 5 p.m. I will be Susie Q. Smith again. And that's what's going to happen. <laughs> but right now I'm wearing this this hat, this Clark Kent, you know, these these sure. goofy glasses and pretending to be someone entirely different. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, we're um, uh, unbelievably at time right now. So now's the time of the show where uh, I'd love for you to plug anything that you're working on, uh, anything that we can point people to. How can they get more involved with you? How can they follow you? Where can they find you? Plug anything you want right now. I would say the most exciting thing that I'm working on right now that most people are going to be excited about with me is the National Poetry Slam coming to Denver. So that's taken a lot of effort. Um, But not only is it going to be in Denver in 2017, but Denver is now also an anchor city for the National Poetry Slam, which means we're going to be hosting it every five years. Sweet. So there's a ton of opportunity for everyone to get involved. So a lot more people are going to know what Poetry Slam is. I will say that it's impossible to go to a Poetry Slam and walk away unmoved. You're going to feel something no matter what, no matter who you are, no matter what walk of life. Any poetry slam, I think, anywhere in the world, if you if you listen to it, um, you're definitely going to get your heart busted open at some point. Wow. So there's going to be something that changes the way you think. There's going to be something that really changes the way you feel. Like you're going to learn something important and powerful. So I think that it's a really effective art form in that way that you can't not be in, in, moved by it. You ha- it's very engaging because you've got a person right in front of you telling you their life story in three minutes and you know, <laughs> yeah. or whatever it is. And it's, it immediately evokes some concept of empathy or rage um, or whatever it yeah. is. It's going to make you feel something, um, even if it's just that you profoundly disagree with everything they just said. <laughs> um which is so, possible, right? Yeah. So, so I want people to come, uh, you know, but we also have a lot of opportunities for volunteers. Uh, we're definitely looking for as many partners as possible to like make this as Denver as possible, right? We want nice. it to be the best national poetry slam ever. This will be the 28th national poetry slam. So there have been some others that were fine. They were great. <laughs> they were great in their own way. You know, yeah. But I, I, they're not going to be Denver, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I want this to be the best that it's ever been. I want everyone to come from all over the state i want people to be here and checking things out and in addition to like coming and checking out the poetry slams there's also going to be like a million workshops and open mics so people can come and share their own work create their own work right, side be, events that kind yeah of thing. so writing workshops and professional development workshops um you know in addition to being an art form like a, one thing that's unique about slam poetry is it's almost 
inherent in it, right? That it's also about social justice, right? And community yeah. organizing and activism, right? So nearly every single slam poet that you ask is going to identify as an activist in some way, right? Yeah. They have some sort of particular issue or, you know, m- many of them are volunteers and many of them are also multidisciplinary artists, right? So slam poetry is one thing that they do, but they're also actors or musicians and or et cetera and do a million other things, right? So, yeah. so there's also going to be a lot of different kinds of workshops that are cross genre. There's going to be a ton of different things to do. So wow. it's going to be fun. Yeah. It's going to be really fun. Is there a website? NationalPoetrySlam.com. NationalPoetrySlam.com. I will link to that in the companion blog piece, JohnOfAllTrades.us. Susie Q. Smith, this was just an absolute delight. I am so happy that we got to meet and chat, and I wish you nothing but continued success. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for episode 109 of the John of All Trades podcast with Susie Q. Smith, slam poet and executive director of Poetry Slam Incorporated. I adored this episode so much, and the insight into that crazy cutthroat world of selling large quantities of food to restaurants, man, that was like a sweet little bonus on this episode, right? I thought I was getting a lot of insight into the slam poetry world, and I did, and that was exquisite, but to have that as well, man, that was fascinating, and anytime we can talk about making the leap, let's do it. That's right in my wheelhouse. I love hearing about people who left a job that was unfulfilling for them and dedicated themselves to their passion, so... Big ups to Susie Q. Smith. Check out the companion blog piece for all the links to get to her. That is johnofalltrades.us, J-O-N of alltrades.us. Our sponsor is Four Degrees. They're deep in campaign season. So anyone you need to reach online, Four Degrees will help you do that. And they will do it at a cost that is incredibly attractive. So the number four, D-E-G-R-E.es. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check us out on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. I'm back next week with a fresh episode. Episode previews are only on Facebook, so find me there at J-O-A-T pod. And until I see you then, say goodnight, crazy. That's good, Johnny.